Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul Ramsey. It's a joy to be with you this morning to be preaching the gospel from Hebrews chapter 13 as we continue through our sermon series. If you're new here, if I haven't met you yet, I look forward to meeting you. So glad uh, that you're with us this morning. You're probably familiar with TED Talks. TED Talks became popular, uh, very popular about 15 years ago. TED is an organization that brings together uh, leading thinkers on given, talk, uh, given, given topics to talk for anywhere from five to 20 minutes on their field of expertise. And TED became popular in a wave of optimism. There was a lot of promise with communication technology and the internet and streaming videos. Uh, man, we can talk about things and share information like we've never been able to before. The question though is how much change TED Talks have affected. One of the most popular TED Talks of all time, uh, you may have heard of it, was given by a psychologist named Brene Brown, and it was on the topic of shame. Uh, some of you may have heard, actually, if you heard that TED Talk, would you raise your hand for me? Very good, a number, a good number of us, hands down. Very good. So it's a very, it was a very good talk. It was very thought-provoking. I remember listening to it and thinking, this is extremely thought-provoking. The question is, for those of you who saw it, what is something that you remember her saying during that talk? Or perhaps what's one tangible takeaway that you remember from that talk? I would guess, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, I would guess that the answer is probably I don't remember. What was her talk about? It was about shame, and it was good. Well, what did she say about shame? That it's bad. <laughs> um, we tend to, when we learn, hear things like TED Talks, uh, we often remember the emotions we felt more than the content than we heard. And why is that? Because talks by themselves divorce the dissemination of information from personal engagement in different ways. And that breaks the process of learning. You see, learning is more than simply hearing. It's also experiencing and engaging with personally. Jesus, we're told, learned obedience through suffering. There's something, some way in which Jesus learned, in which he took something on as, as his own through experience. And the same is true of us today. We come to this final chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Um, this is the, uh, the second to last sermon. We'll preach the rest of it next week. Uh, but we've been walking through this since the beginning of July, and we've seen these glorious truths of the gospel. We've seen this extraordinary exposition of the truths of what it means that Jesus came as the inaugurator of the new covenant that we have. Uh, and here at the end, we see that the writer to the Hebrews says, now don't just hear me. Don't just hear how good this is. Live out these truths that you've heard. 
when we come to this passage, we've just heard all of this good news, and our passage, it, it ends, chapter 12 ends with this picture of offering God acceptable worship in light of the glorious gift that he's given us in the gospel. And then here in chapter 13, the picture of worship is completed. It's not something different. The life of worship is not just about what happens here on Sunday mornings, but it's about our entire lives. That is what it looks like to live in response to the goodness of the gospel. If you've, have you ever heard the phrase, something like, he's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good? Uh, this is, describes a person, you might not have heard of it, uh, but it describes a person who's, too, who's super optimistic, head in the clouds, that they're not very practically helpful, they're not in touch with the reality, just can't wait to get to heaven. Well, the Bible doesn't paint the picture of a bunch of people who are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. The Bible uh, is a picture uh, of Jesus saying, live in such a way that you bring heaven to bear on earth. Love one another, serve the poor. Indeed, this is the picture we see in this passage, that our life of worship doesn't end with hearing the gospel message and giving it a thumbs up, but with a life lived in response to it. And so we're going to look at three things together this morning. We're going to look at the call of this passage, the challenge, and then the change. Three things, the call, the challenge, and the change. And so let's jump in with point one, the call. In this passage, we're given three clear exhortations. Be loving, be pure, and be content. In short, we're called to live out our faith by being loving, pure, and content. Let's jump right in. First, we're told to be loving. Look with me at verse 1. It says, let brotherly love continue. As we consider what it means to live lives of worship, to live out the truths of the gospel, we begin with brotherly love. Not just love as a vague concept, but familial love. Love for your brothers and sisters. This was one of the main things that came from the mouth of Jesus during his ministry about what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Jesus says this in John 15. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Love one another. As one commentator put it, Christian love must never degenerate into mere pious emotion. So this isn't just love as a feeling of love for people, but a love that's demonstrated. And as we read on, we see two examples of this love being demonstrated. The first one's there in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So open your home. Entertain hospitality to strangers. And that phrase, by this, some have entertained angels unawares. There's a number of stories in the Bible that would have immediately be called into the Hebrews' minds. The most, uh, the, one of the clearest examples, I think, is the story of Abraham from Genesis chapter 18. If you're familiar with the story, if you're not, I'll explain it for you briefly. Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, this is coming right out of the story of the, circum the, the, the circumcision. So Abraham and all of the men in his family have just been circumcised. And they're sitting in the cool of the day, recovering. And so they're in, a, they're in, as you can imagine, some discomfort. And then they see, Abraham sees two strange men appear on the horizon. If there was ever a time for Abraham to say, you know what, now's not a good time, it would have been that. But he doesn't, despite the discomfort, he stands up and runs to greet these two visitors. And these turn out to be two angels that promise the birth of a son, and so forth. And so it's this extraordinary passage right there in Genesis chapter 18 that shows that the father of the faithful, Abraham, was a man of hospitality. He didn't know he was entertaining angels, but he was. And your mind might also go to Jesus 
when he says, um, when the question, he gives this passage about the judgment day at the last where he will separate the sheep from the goats, the faithful from those who are unfaithful, and he rebukes the unfaithful for saying, you never came to visit me, you never opened your home to me. And they say, when do we do this? He said, well, when you served the least of these, that's when you did this for me. And so Jesus himself is present in the person who needs hospitality, the person who needs a visit in prison. And so we're given this reference to some have entertained angels unawares. There's all these stories that would have been in the back of the mind of the Hebrews. Hospitality, in other words, has to do with opening and sharing what you have with others. This has to do with your home, but also has to do with your stuff, your food, opening your friend group for the person who wants in, opening this church, opening your parish. If love does not issue in a hospitable home, it has scarcely begun to work at all, as one commentator says. And it's amazing how much, I mean, it's worth, worth saying, it's amazing how much we use our homes here at Sojourn. Um, and we, we open our homes to one another. We, in the parish leader rest month is coming up. We're getting ready to have a bunch of people open homes and invite your parish in. And this passage is inviting us to do that, but also see your home not just as a venue for church activities, but as a haven for those in your neighborhood, um, those in need. So do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. But also, verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated. So this is the second example the writer gives us of brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. Remember those who are in prison. And this second example helps us to see things both ways. On the one hand, we are to welcome those into our home who can come. On the other hand, what about those who can't come? The invitation here is to go to them. Remember those who are in prison, as though you're in prison with them. And this has to do, of course, with prison, literally. At the time, there were many in, uh, many of these Hebrews would have been imprisoned, would have been called prisoners of conscience. They would have been imprisoned for their faith, and so go visit them. But there's also others who were imprisoned, who came to faith in Jesus, who needed to be visited. But then there's also a sense that most commentators point this out in this. We're seeing, you know, think about those who can come to your house, open your home to them. But also think about those who can't come to you. This also includes people who might be imprisoned in ways that are not in prison. Picture the sick, the shut-ins. Picture the person who society has shut the door to. Um, there are many prisoners who are isolated in prison, but there's also people who have been cut off by everyone else in their lives. Uh, or you could also think of one of the loneliest populations in our culture, which would be the elderly. Listen to this one quote from a person uh, in an assisted living home. I'm still terribly lonely. It's the evenings. The club closes at 4.30 p.m. and there's nothing but long, empty hours until bedtime. I've heard so many old people say there's nothing for us now. You've got to eat to sort of keep alive, but there's nothing. The time is so long, the evenings, the weekends, I've heard several people say, I don't care how soon the end comes for me. I know lots of people, but that isn't the same as a close friend. There are many people who are stuck and who need a visit. As an aside, this isn't, this isn't an invitation to find, look for all of the people around you who might possibly need something and run yourself ragged to do these things. This is an invitation instead to consider the people who are already a part of your life. People who the Spirit pricks your heart and says, I could, that person might use a visit. They might use a meal. 
Maybe I should let this person into my home. Maybe I should invite this person over for dinner. The life of faith is a life that's lived not for your own sake, but for the sake of others. Live a life of love. Indeed, this is what you were created for. So that's the first exhortation. Be loving. The second exhortation is found there in verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So first, be loving, and second, be pure. There are two things that might help us understand this teaching in context. For one, there was a teaching at this time that, was, uh, that, that held that marriage was good as long as it was convenient. Marriage is to serve you, not others. Acceptable divorce was a very broad category. This is what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you've heard it said that just give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. But I tell you, what God has brought together shouldn't be uh, rent asunder. So there's this narrowing, this concept in which marriage had become, instead of something that pictures and glorifies God, it had become something to serve the self. And so this is written to that, so hold marriage in honor. There's also a general disdain in some of the communities at this time for marriage. There were some who forbid marriage, as we read. Paul uh, in 1 Timothy 4 warns Timothy that some will arise who are deceitful and they'll tell you false things like they'll forbid marriage or they'll require abstinence from certain foods that are unnecessary. So some were forbidding marriage, but others just kind of had a general disdain that marriage was something that was unnecessary or antiquated. And so contra this, against this, the writer says marriage is to be held in honor. It's good. It's a picture of the gospel. And this is, of course, also an important teaching for us today. Probably both of those contextual things about what was going on at that time, you can hear echoes into the present moment in which there is a broad category of acceptable divorce. There are people who are questioning the importance of marriage, waiting, you know, couples who stay together for years and years before marriage because it's not that important. In this case, this, this might seem like an encouragement that's out of place, but it's not hard to see the connection. The writer of the Hebrews is telling us that our lives are not to be lived for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Your body is not given to you for your own pleasure, but to be used for the sake of others. The third exhortation is found in verses 5 and 6. Say this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So be loving, be pure, and here be content. The life of faith is a life of entrusting yourself to God, who is with you, God who will give you all that you need, Indeed, he's given you all that you need right now. Instead of your heart being set on riches that you don't have yet, or maybe even the riches that you do have, instead, set your heart on your heavenly Father who provides for you. You want to know what will prevent you from li living a life of love for others, of hospitality to others, of personal restraint and purity. The constant, you know what will keep you away from that, is the constant struggle for more. The life of constantly trying to get for yourself what others have or looking what other people have and thinking, I need more. This is the life of the world around us. And it's consuming. It never ends. There is no rest in this life. There's always a next item to buy, a next meal to worry about, a next level of acquisition. Instead of this, the writer says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what does it look like to live a life of contentment? It looks like a life of confidence in another. Rather than seeking to get everything and keep it for yourself, there's a real trust in the provision of God. The Lord is my helper. I have enough. I might not have enough right now for tomorrow, but when tomorrow comes, God will provide enough for me then. I have enough for today. I even have enough to share with this other person. I can welcome someone into my home. I can give a vacation day or two to a lonely friend who could use a visit. I don't need to go around God's good intent for my body in search of fulfillment because I am as fulfilled as I need to be. Beware the temptation to be a lover of money. Instead, be a lover of God. Be content with what you have. So here's these three exhortations. Be loving, be pure, be content. Coming out of this wonderful presentation of the gospel throughout the book of Hebrews, this glorious truth that we've been brought to Mount Zion as we came to last week. We've been brought to the very presence of God. We come to these practical exhortations where the writer says, now in light of this, be loving, be pure, be content. At first it might seem like several random things, but they're, of course, as we've observed, they're connected. You have been saved. You've been bought with a price. Your life has been hidden with Christ in God, so live like it. Don't hoard what you have. Share it with others. Don't abandon God's design for love and relationships. He gives you what you need right when you need it. Don't chase after money. Be content with what you have because God has given you just what you need. It is in living these things that we watch as our faith takes on flesh, as our faith becomes incarnate, embodied, and as it grows, as it matures. One of the things that I get to do as a pastor is I get to officiate weddings. I, was at, I had the opportunity to officiate a wedding just last week. Um, and one of the things that I love to say uh, in weddings uh, is I love to talk about the nature of covenant. Um, because marriage is one of those things. It's a, it's a beautiful covenant relationship. Uh, and the nature of covenant is that when you enter into a covenant, you are fully married right away. But you don't yet know what that means. You kind of have a general sense of what the definition of marriage is and the promises that you make, hopefully. Um, but to understand what that means takes a life of walking out those promises and realizing more and more every day the beauty of being in a relationship where you don't have to pretend because you've pledged your lives to one another. And the beauty of, of receiving love and forgiveness from another who knows even the worst things about you. These things are things that are worked out. You know kind of going into it, I want that. But you learn what it looks like as it is lived out. This deepening commitment is what shows you the way to true joy. The life of faith is something quite similar. To put it this way, the Apostle James says something quite similar. In the book of James chapter 2, there's a passage that you may be familiar with. It teaches that faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. In other words, if you say you have faith, but that doesn't translate into good works, into doing the things that Jesus says, loving the things that Jesus loves, then it's not true living faith. True faith is something that is lived out. See, in that passage... There's something interesting that James mentions. He points to the story of Abraham and the story of when Abraham offered up his son Isaac in an act of faith, but then God provides a substitute uh, for Isaac so that Isaac doesn't have to be sacrificed. But then uh, listen to what James says about this. He says this about Abraham. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Faith was completed by his works. 
In other words, there's something about faith that is incomplete until it is accompanied with works. There's something about listening to a TED Talk that means that your engagement with that subject hasn't actually been true engagement until you've done something with it yourself. Faith must be active for the works to mean anything, but when engaged by faith, good works complete that faith. They demonstrate it. They perfect it. They, de they, uh, they strengthen it. And the reason I'm belaboring this point is because I think this is what our passage is talking about. At the heart of what we are being called to do is that the writer does not want us to want to leave us sitting and thinking, merely thinking about this extraordinary presentation of the gospel. He wants us to get after it. The gospel ought to inform the kind of life that looks like all of the great faithful saints that have gone before us. This is the book of Hebrews version of faith without works is dead. Faith is completed in works. And here, which brings me to the second point. Here's the challenge. So we talked about the call of the passage, which calls us to live out our faith. Here's the challenge. You see, the challenge is relatively simple, and it's this. It's that we are already living our lives. There are already many things that we're doing. And if we see in this passage a list of things that I have to do too, on top of all the other things that I'm already doing, then that quickly becomes unsustainable. Let me explain what, I'm, let me explain what I mean. Uh, it's been said that we are in a technocratic age, an age where technique is everything. To put it one way, if you have goals and hopes that you want to achieve, then you can do it. The reason that you haven't done those things yet is because you haven't employed the right technique. So there's a lot of how-to advice in the world. Rather than focusing on being, uh, excuse me, rather than the focus being on what kind of character or maturity or hope God might be cultivating in our hearts and not having the things that we want, the focus of our culture is instead on finding out how we can improve in our pursuit of those things. Because of this, we take advice from people and we add things to our lives. Over and over again, we hear something and we, we, we throw it in the hopper and we add it to our lives, seeking to strategize our way into the contentment and joy that we are looking for. This is what you can do to find contentment. This is what you can do to find joy. This is what you can do to find peace. Here is the set of practices that can help you structure your life in a way to make the most of the time. And so we take it all in, piling up our to-do list, our calendars, our thought lives with things that we think that we should be doing. Because of that, our lives are pretty full already. See, we're already doing what we think will give us life and satisfaction. We're already living our lives in accordance with principles that we've learned along the way about what will lead to all of these things that we want. And so when we come to a passage that tells us to continue in brotherly love, to pursue purity, to be content, to be hospitable, to remember those in prison, we can be tempted to just add these things to the hopper of the things that we're supposed to be doing. But the problem is that this either leads to an unsustainable life or we just say, I'll get around to those things when I can, which means we never do. And I want to stay here for a moment. You see, if we let God's word press on us for a moment, if we see what ties these exhortations together and bring alongside, you know, and bring that alongside our hearts and lives, we see that they come to a head with what we've been told our whole lives that life is about. What is the through line that runs through these exhortations? It's that your life, your life is not all about you. And this, we understand, runs counter to the way that we've learned to live our lives. We know that we should live for others, but in practice, 
our decisions often reflect a very different kind of principle. We hear an invitation to live a life of love, of hospitality to those who are standing at our door, whether literally or relationally, and we already have this list of qualifications that come to mind. Now is not a good time. I'm pretty maxed out right now. You know, we've got a lot of sports things for our kids, so evenings don't really work for our family right now. This person seems pretty needy, and I don't know that if I have capacity for you right now. We hear an invitation to sexual purity, to hold marriage in high honor. And in the face of this is this cultural message that we love that proclaims that personal satisfaction is the highest good. That there are a number of tweaks that we can make to this antiquated practice. Let's do a try-before-you-buy-it season before we make a commitment of our whole lives. Purity culture obviously didn't work, so let's try hookup culture. When your marriage isn't fulfilling, then maybe you made a mistake. Maybe it's good to just let that be in the past and move on to something better. We hear an invitation to a life of contentment, to entrust ourselves to the Lord, who is our helper. And in the face of this is the way of the world around us. There's always more for us to find for ourselves. The invitation is to be content with what you have, and our response is, yeah, but once I get this or that, then I'll be able to relax. Then I'll be able to be more present with the people who need me. Then I'll be able to be more generous with my time, with my money, with my emotional energy. In light of this, we really have two options, I think. One, we can look at the exhortations in this passage and leave them on the surface and implement them in our technocratic sense of technique, try to strategize our way into fitting these things into our lives. Or number two, we can let this invite us to dig a little bit deeper, which I would say, let's do that. See, if we look outward, or excuse me, if we look beneath the outward manifestations of love, of purity, of contentment to the level of the heart, there is this collision that I mentioned. If we listen to our hearts, our responses to these encouragements, there is a principle that is being revealed. You see, like I said, we are already doing what we think will give us life and satisfaction, which is inevitably shaped by the world around us. And what is this mantra? What is the world teaching us that our lives are about? Carpe diem, seize the day. You can do it. If you want it, go get it. Translation, I am my helper. The world says, I am my helper. It'll only fit in my life if it fits with me helping myself. In the face of this command, we hear the command, be content. Excuse me, in the face of this, we hear the command to be content with what we have because the Lord is our helper. Now the phrase, be content with what you have, is certainly talking about money, but it's, of course, also talking about more than just money. It's followed by an encouragement that God will never leave you nor forsake you, that he is your helper. This calls to mind situations in which the Hebrews found themselves at risk of imprisonment or persecution or even death. And so in the exhortation to be content with what you have, he's talking, of course, about money, but also about general life circumstances. And I don't want to overstate it, but I do think that the command to be content with what you have may just be the hardest commandment in the Bible for us. I suppose we could say that about here in this part of the world today, you know, which is marked by wealth and constant acquisition, but I don't think it's just about our culture. I think it's about the very human heart. I mean, this is literally the command that Adam and Eve broke in the Garden of Eden. God said, I've given you enough. 
and they were not content with what they had. They had to have just one more thing. Be content with what you have. This as a command is terribly difficult for us, in part because often the things that we have are very hard. If we're honest about the human life, it's that life brings us very challenging situations. The norm of the human experience is suffering. But even when it's not hard, even when life is going pretty well, the way of the world, the way of the heart, is that it's not enough. There's always more that I can have, that I should have, that I want to have, whether we're talking about money or pleasure or relationships or safety or space or time or capacity, we always want more. And so we come to what I think, of course, is the heart of the passage. The basic principle of our lives is that you can always get more because you are your helper. But the message of this passage is you have enough because the Lord is your helper. Which brings us to the third point, the change. So far we've seen that the call of the passage is to live your life for the sake of others, to live out your faith in real life. The second thing we saw was that the problem is that this runs counter to our basic principle of looking out for ourselves, of being our own helper, which brings us to the question of how we do it, which brings us to the change. You see, when we're brought to the point of realizing that what we're called to do is something that runs contrary to our way of doing things, if we let it, this collision of realities will bring us to a critical place, and that's this. It will bring us to the place where we realize that we really can't do this. The reason that we live our lives looking out for ourselves, we live our lives seeing ourselves as our own helper, is because we can't live otherwise. When we're told to be content with what we have, we won't do it. We don't do it because the problem that we have is not a problem of intellect or strategy. It's not a problem of willpower or effort. It's a problem of nature. This is where the offense of the Bible comes in crystal clear. We are sinners. We are hardwired to sin, to live life our own way. We can't do this, we can't do these commandments because we are sinners by nature. We, which is where the whole book of Hebrews up to this point comes into the view. Because while the Bible is offensive in calling us sinners, it also presents us with the fact that we are not just more sinful than we ever dared believe, but that we are more loved than we ever dared to hope. Because this is precisely why Jesus came and did what only he could do. Jesus' sacrificial death for us did at least two things. Number one, he paid for the penalty of sin so that we could be forgiven by God. But, and this is where this kind of kicks in with our passage, in so doing, he also made a way for us to be transformed, to be brought into God's presence where we could be changed. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to bear and invited us into it. In other words, the question of this passage is not merely about a different way of doing life. It's about two different kingdoms. It's about the kingdom of this world being overtaken by the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the self and the kingdom of God's beloved son. And the good news of the gospel is this, because of Jesus, the gates to the kingdom of heaven are wide open and God is calling his children back home. He's awaking us from death to sin so that we might come to life in Christ. This is what the message of the book of Hebrews is all about. This ministry of the new covenant is a ministry of life and it's been established by Jesus. We've been brought near to God and it's in his presence that we can be changed 
that we have been changed, that we are being changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus because there's something essential. The reason I'm bringing this up is there's something essential about the kingdom of God that we need to understand. When we come to a, this book which talks about the gospel and the glorious truth of Jesus, this exhortation to live things out, the realization that we struggle to do it, here's something that we must know about the kingdom of God. During his ministry, Jesus spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. One of the things that he did is he told a number of parables. And he told these parables in part to communicate something that he refers to as the secret of the kingdom. Now the secret of the kingdom is not the what of the kingdom of God. It's not uh, that the kingdom of God has come. The secret is that the kingdom of God is here. That's not a secret. The secret of the kingdom of God was how it would come. If you think about some of the parables, those of you who are familiar, a little bit more familiar with the story of the New Testament and Jesus' ministry, these parables tell the story of the fact that the kingdom of God starts small and then grows. Think about the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus tells that parable to communicate about how the kingdom of God comes. It doesn't come all at once with a conquering Jesus on a white horse. It starts small and it slowly grows until it takes over the world. There's another parable, the parable of the seeds, which talks about the individual people receiving the gospel. And it's not individual people all of a sudden are totally transformed. It's that seeds are planted in the heart that take root, that start to grow, and that over time, the kingdom of God comes. So here's what I'm talking about about this. The secret of the kingdom is how it would come. In the life of ordinary people, who live and follow Jesus, the kingdom of God, the realization of these realities of glory that we've been welcomed into, unfold gradually over time. Picture it this way. A few years ago, Lindsay and I had the opportunity to go to a citizenship naturalization ceremony. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to go that. We went with a friend of ours who became an American citizen. It was in a big, um, it was a huge ceremony. So it was, you know, it's, you picture a courtroom where a judge declares them to be citizens. This was in a huge, like I think it was a high school auditorium with thousands of people who became naturalized and said their vows to uh, uphold the United States and so on. It was a beautiful ceremony, and I remember vividly the pictures of joy on these people's faces. Um, I'm a naturalized immigrant myself from Canada, although I don't have a memory like this because Canada is not that different from the U.S. in many ways. There's some ways in which it's different. But I want you to think with me for a moment about refugees, those who come to the U.S. from countries that are very different from ours, where life is extraordinarily difficult. They learned in their home country, they may have learned that in order to get by, you needed to bribe those in authority. To be successful in business, you needed to engage in some corrupt business practices because it's a world where the strong take advantage of the weak, and so you want to do whatever you can to be one of the strong people so you don't get devoured. That in order to survive, you need to be strong. When a person who's grown up in that kind of environment comes here, often the first thought is to jump, to just continue in the patterns of what they learned their whole life because it's all that they've known. And then I want you to picture being someone who helps a refugee acclimate to life in the United States where you don't have to do those things, where you get to look at that person and say, you don't have to do that. You don't have to live your life in fear in the business world because we have a legal system that is not perfect, but it functions a lot better than yours did back home. You can let go of your way of doing things the same is true with the kingdom of God. Jesus looked at people and said, the kingdom of God is here. And we see in the ministry of the disciples that Jesus had to repeat this. 
gently and firmly over and over again, constantly inviting his disciples. You don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore. Let's do things this way instead. Let's do things that way instead. Let go of your way of doing things and instead follow me. And we see in the life of the disciples that the whole life of following Jesus is the life of letting go. There's a sense in which it starts with a letting go, but that's just, it's not just a one and done thing. Faith isn't just a one time I let it go, now I'm done. It's an invitation to a life of letting go. As life brings you repeated opportunities to choose the way of the kingdom of God or the way of the kingdom of this world. The way of I don't have enough, which is the way of this world, which constantly presents itself. Or am I going to choose in this moment, in this instance, to believe that I do have enough? Verse 5 tells us to be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see, at the heart of the matter, it's when you let go of your life that you actually begin to taste the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of abundant provision and love and mercy, and it's gradual. It happens one meal at a time, one interaction at a time, one stranger welcomed into your home at a time, one decision to choose the way of honoring marriage at a time. One moment where you could operate out of a scarcity mindset and hoarding what you have or being content with what you have and freely giving what you have been freely given. And so what does this mean for us? At least two things. First, it means that the invitation of this passage is to see everyday life as a classroom for learning what it means to truly have faith. The invitation of this passage is to live out our faith in love, in purity, and in contentment. But instead of seeing this as a list of things to add to my life, I think this means that as we come across times when it would be appropriate to do these things, we're invited to ask the deeper question when we want to lean away from inviting a person in. We get to ask the deeper question, what is my life about? How am I understanding my life? Am I content with what I have? Or is this situation reminding me that I'm truly not content? And that's an invitation to repentance. You see, we all have a picture of our lives that is shaped inevitably by the world around us, by our own selves. And all of our pictures, those of us who are in Christ, are gradually being reshaped and restructured in line with God's vision for our lives. And the way this is reshaped is not simply by thinking, not simply by believing, but also by doing. You can think all you want about a God who provides for you everything you need, it's a totally different thing to experience God's provision in a moment when you actually need him to show, show up. Whether it's a moment of abject poverty with physical possessions or whether it's a moment where you're in physical poverty, emotional poverty, spiritual poverty, where you have chosen to obey his commands to invite someone into your home even when you thought you couldn't do it and you watch as God gave you the energy, the strength, the resources. He provided for you just what you needed in that given moment. Uh, When Jesus, in the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, uh, you you guys may be familiar with the story where he was at this wedding feast where they ran out of wine and the servants are panicking. But then Jesus' mom says these interesting words. You know, they come up saying, what are are we going to do? What are we going to do? She says, Jesus, what are you going to do? He responds, now's not my time. But then she looks at the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. They didn't have enough. Jesus said, go fill these pots with water. Why am I filling 
how is this going to give us more wine? They put the pots of water on the side, and then Jesus used those means where they didn't know how what they were doing out of obedience could bring about the solution that they knew that they needed. Jesus did it anyway. God is a God who provides richly for us. Do whatever he tells you. And the second thing that this means is that this means that the people around you are not inconveniences to be tolerated, but instruments of God's grace in teaching you what it means to truly love in the way that you have been loved by Jesus. You know what I believe? I believe that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. I believe that the Holy Spirit enlivens and vivifies that God is in a process of drawing us all into his presence where he can transform us. He has all of the riches of heaven at his fingertips and he distributes to any who has need. And I also believe that this God who can provide everything that we need takes time to grow to trust. And so Sojourn, as we devote ourselves to lives of living life one step at a time, of growing in trust for him, of living in obedience, allow the truths of the commands of Jesus to bring us to this question. Am I content in what I have been given? Or am I living this life chasing after something different from the Lord who provides all that I need? At the beginning, um, I opened up with talking about TED Talks. The question that we kind of come to is, okay, here we are sitting and listening to a sermon. How is this any different from a TED Talk? Well, there's at least two ways in which this is different from a TED Talk. Way number one is that the Holy Spirit is present in our midst as we read and engage with his word. The difference between a sermon and a TED Talk is not me, it's not you, it's God's presence abiding in, in his living word and speaking and ministering to our hearts. So what is happening right now is utterly different than what's happening at a TED Talk for that reason. But then the second reason is this. This is not just a talk given to a number of random people who bought tickets who might never see one another again. Every sermon that we preach here at Sojourn is a message to a particular people, to a particular family, that this text is calling us to let brotherly love continue. Let the love of being brothers and sisters continue. And as we walk over the course of our lives, the invitation is to do so together, serving and loving with one another, confessing and repenting to one another when we find out that we are actually operating not out of contentment, but out of scarcity, and watching as God brings our faith to completion as we seek to live lives that follow him and what he says, simply because he says it. Do whatever he tells you, and in so doing, you will find life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, and thank you for this wonderful passage where we are reminded um, that faith is not just something that we're supposed to sit and think and muster up, but you have designed in your good providence that it is in the context of real life of doing seemingly ordinary things that you do extraordinary things in our hearts. Showing us your love as we struggle to love others. Showing us your hospitality as we struggle to exercise and demonstrate hospitality to others. Showing us our poverty as we love those who are in poverty. Because we share the same body with them. Lord, thank you for the fact that life is not easy. Thank you for the fact that the life, a life that is marked by suffering is a life that acquaints us with our suffering Savior. 
I pray, Lord, that in those moments where we are squeezed, that you would protect us from the temptation to find the right technique to get out of it, but instead would be mindful of the kind of hearts that you are shaping inside us as we struggle, as we wait, as we yearn for the day of your return. So, Lord, please help us to let go of our life, take up the life that you've called us to, and lean into you for grace. Lean on one another when we are exhausted and watch as you do marvelous things in our midst and in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.